Um, happy Father's Day to the dads in our midst. Um, Father's Day uh, is not nearly as cool as Mother's Day because every dad realizes that um, being a mother is a lot like being a dad, except it's way harder um, and, uh, yeah, and way less appreciated. And so uh, dads, um, though, seriously, um, happy Father's Day. A um, couple things to think about on Father's Day. First of all, obviously, uh, everyone in here has a father. And everyone in here has a father that can be valued and thanked for something. I know sometimes on a Father's Day or a Mother's Day, we think about the earthly fathers and mothers that God has given us, and we think, well, you know, my dad was absent, or, you know, my dad wasn't a great example, or this, that, or the other. But there's always something that ca- you can be thankful for uh, with, your, with your father. So I would encourage you to do this today. If it, may, if it might be your inclination to think, I didn't have a great dad, and I'm, you know, I really don't want to think about that, I want to encourage you to find some means of grace, some measure of grace, some way that God was gracious to you through your dad. And if your father's still living, I want to encourage you to communicate that to him some way, somehow today. And then if your father's no longer living, I want you to communicate with your heavenly father and thank your heavenly father for giving you the dad that he gave you and for bringing those gracious things into your life the way that he did. Okay, and then if you are a father here this morning, uh, we're going to pray here in just a second. I'm going to ask the Lord to strengthen us for the work that um, that he has given us to do. But for all of us, there is great joy this morning in remembering that there was only one, there is only one perfect father. There's only one perfect father. You may have had a great father, but I assure you, even those of us in here who would say, I mean, and I would say this, this would be true of me, I would say, my father, my dad is fantastic. My dad, I just can't imagine having a better dad. But you know what? He disappointed me. He let me down. He frustrated me. He didn't do everything perfectly. There is only one father who will interact with you that way. And even our earthly fathers remind us that we need something, someone better than, the, than him. And so we look to our heavenly father. So let's bow our heads right now. We're going to pray and thank the father for being our father. Thank the father for giving us fathers and ask the father to help us be good fathers. <clears throat> the English language title that we address you with most often is Father. And we know that in every culture, in every place, people understand the concept of Father. You've done that for us on purpose, we know, so that we can stop, even this morning, and come to our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Thank you for being the one and only perfect, true Father. All of us have earthly fathers, and we're thankful for them. Thank you for showing your kindness and your grace and your goodness to us to greater or lesser degrees through the human earthly fathers that you have given us. We thank you for them. Father, for the men in here this morning who are fathers, who who do have children, or maybe will have children, or have grandchildren, Father, we ask that you would help us to be the kind of men who disciple the next generation, that we would point them to the great and heavenly Father. Father, that, that you would help us to um, to be uh, aware of our weaknesses and inabilities as a father, <clears throat> and yet to seek to father and parent our children with the wisdom from your word. So, Father, thank you for being a father. Thank you for making us fathers and help us to be the kind of fathers that you would desire us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. And again, I'll be sipping on my tea throughout the morning this morning. 
let me start, as you're turning your way there, let me start this week by um, uh, saying a couple things about this last week, my, my sermon from last week, uh, in an attempt to communicate to you the seriousness of God's righteousness in the damnation of sinners. I think I confused, I may have confused some of you and I may have uh, spoken inappropriately. So first of all, let me say um, that uh, as I talked about God's the cursing of other people, um, I, I may have indicated that it's okay for humans to curse. And I, I, I want to make sure I'm very clear on that. It's not okay to curse. And then secondly, in my attempt to passionately communicate with you how serious the damnation of sinners is, I think I may have spoken um, in a way that was inappropriate. And so I want to ask you to forgive me for that. So if you were here this last week, I'm asking you, would you forgive me for communicating that way with you? Will you please forgive me? If, thank you. If you weren't here last week, that will teach you to miss a Sunday. <clears throat> <clears throat> it's online for all the world to see, so, so thank you for that. <clears throat> I, my, my greatest fear at the end of that was that I had clouded what I was hoping to make clear, uh, the seriousness of God's righteousness in the damnation of sinners. So anyway, you really can go back and, and uh, listen to the sermon and ignore my foolishness about halfway through. This morning, <clears throat> the passage that we're looking at, by the way, if you're visiting with us, that's how I start just about every Sunday, is uh, with a public apology. I'm just kidding, but I probably should uh, start just about every Sunday that way. This morning, we are looking at uh, one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. I was talking with my wife yesterday, and I said, apart from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, apart from what Jesus Christ did when he personally hung on the cross to rescue a world of sinners, I think that what's happening here in the book of Exodus is the most significant thing in history. Again, apart from what Christ did on the cross himself. The book of Exodus is the story of God rescuing a people out of slavery and bringing them into a place where he dwells with them while they are on their way to dwell with him. We're kind of saying that that's the, that's the theme of the book of Exodus. And what we're going to look at this morning in chapter 12, many of your Bibles even have the heading that says the Passover. The last week, uh, last couple of weeks, we've been looking at these plagues, these nine plagues that God has brought against the nation of Israel. And basically what God is doing in those nine plagues is he's addressing all of the gods in the pantheon of the wicked nation of Egypt. And he is just literally total knockout, TKO, one punch blows, knocking out God after God after God after God in the pantheon of the false religion of Egypt. And he's saying, I'm the one true God. There, there, is, there is no other God. I, I am who I am. And, and now we get, <clears throat> and we looked at last week at chapter 11, and the final plague was threatened in chapter 11. And now we get into chapter 12 here today, and we're going to see the institution of this really interesting um, object lesson. We're, we're going to read through here in chapter 12 uh, uh, some details and some prescriptions that God is giving to the nation of Israel that if we didn't have, 
some understanding of where this story is going. And this was just the very first time we'd ever heard this passage. We might look at it and go, that's weird. So let's, as best as we possibly can, let's, let's read this passage together with fresh eyes. Okay, so let me, we're going to read all of chapter 12, excuse me, we're not going to read all of chapter 12. Um, I'll, I'll cue you as to where, where we're going to jump around. But chapter 12, starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And I want to say this, was, this would be like um, uh, springtime for us, I believe is when the Jewish calendar, um, I, I should have marked that uh, to, to tell you, but um, uh, this, God is giving them a, a, their own national uh, start calendar. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house. <coughs> a lamb for every household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. And the idea of keeping it, um, many scholars even tell us that, that that meant actually even bringing it into their home. They, were, they, weren't, they weren't leaving this lamb outside. They were protecting it. They found one that was without blemish, and they wanted to keep this lamb very carefully um, for this sacred festival. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass <clears throat> through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. You see where we get the idea or the, the word the Passover? Brothers and sisters, if, if that line is not somehow highlighted or, or identified in your Bible, let me encourage you just in verse 13 there. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statue forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from the land of Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. But no work shall be done on those days, 
what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day through your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised you, you shall keep this sacrifice. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed down their heads and worshiped. And the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Now jump down to verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Father, would you please give us wisdom and eyes to see what is in this passage for us this morning. And I do pray that you would help my voice to hold out until the end of the sermon. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the main point this morning is this. Only the blood of a sacrificed lamb will save from the wrath of God. Only the blood of a sacrificed lamb will save from the wrath of God. I find it interesting. I find it interesting that as we read through the book of Exodus, we get here to chapter 12, and now all of a sudden, here in chapter 12, is this long, complicated list of here's some sacrifices you need to make, and here's some festivals you need to observe, and you have to do it just exactly this way. It's like the mom who, with their first child, is for the first time leaving that child with the very first babysitter, and she has a legal pad full of notes of exactly 
what you're to do with this child and exactly when to do it with this child. And you're to warm the child's milk to 95.8 degrees. I don't know if that's hot or cold for drinking things, but um, and then you're supposed to give it to them at 7.03 p.m. And then you're to burp by patting the child for 48 pats and then turn it like I mean. We're reading through this, and we're like, well, we get the, the basic idea, but then as we're reading through Exodus, Moses repeats it, and then you get to the end of the chapter, and he kind of repeats it again with some additional rules. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on here. What's God doing? He's making it abundantly clear that it is only by the blood of a sacrificed lamb that Israel can be saved. Only by the blood of a sacrificed lamb Oh, that's, no, that's not written right. Only, by, only the blood of a sacrificed lamb, there we go, will save from the wrath of God. Let's walk through this passage and see how true that is. And let's just focus, let's just, before we start drawing all of our New Testament conclusions, let's start by looking right here in chapter 12 and just see what God's doing. Remember, let, it's almost impossible for us, nor should we forget what we know to be true in the New Testament and, and what we know to be true in our own lives. But for a moment, Let's just, let's cordon that off. Let's canister that off. And let's think for a second about what's been happening here in history up to this point. God has chosen a nation out of all the other nations. He's chosen one nation to make a special promise with, a covenant. And he's covenanted with this nation. And this nation is not holier. This nation is not better. This nation is not bigger. This nation is not more righteous. This nation is chosen by God to glorify himself. He has chosen a weak and small nation, and he set his covenant love on them. His hesed has been set upon the nation of Israel. And now he is doing something, and, and, and Jacob, his name is changed to Israel, and he has 12 sons, and they go up into the land of Egypt to help prevent the, the, um, the plague that they were, or the, uh, um, where they didn't have any food. What do you call that? Famine. Thank you. Um, words are coming hard for me today. Um, to prevent the famine that they were experiencing. And they go into the land of Egypt, and then for 400 years they are oppressed by Pharaoh, and they cry out to God, and God, who is gracious to this group of people, comes to them with a, uh, a, a plan of deliverance, and he's delivered these nine plagues to show Egypt that he is the one true God. And he's preparing for this tenth and final plague, at which point Pharaoh is going to let the people of Israel go. And he comes to them with a plan of salvation, a plan of salvation. And we see in this passage that, first of all, when God comes to them with a plan of salvation, that he comes to them with a plan of salvation. And that salvation, first of all, is by grace. This plan of salvation comes to them, and it is a salvation by grace. God has a plan, and he is going to deal graciously with his people and he's going to give them a way that they don't have to experience his wrath. He gives them a lamb. He tells them to choose for themselves a lamb, a lamb for each household. And again, we, 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 we know enough from the New Testament and our own experiences and what John the Baptist says about, behold, the lamb of God. But imagine this is your first time and, and, and you're receiving these instructions as the people of Israel. And Moses comes and says, now everybody needs to get a lamb. And it's got to be just like this. It's got to be a, a lamb with no blemishes or spots. There can't be anything wrong with them. No defects. Not, you can't go find the weak runt of the litter. You need a good, strong, healthy, pure little lamb. And, 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 and we're going to sacrifice it and eat it. We're going to sacrifice it before it's mature. It's only going to be a year old. Um, 
And, and maybe you as a stock owner, you would think, well, that's not the lamb that I would choose to do that with. Like, that's my prized lamb, and, and you know, that's going to be my breeder lamb. I want him to grow in it. And, and no, 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 that's, that's the one for this, for what we're doing here tonight. You go find, you go find a male lamb, a perfect lamb, a young lamb, and we're going to see that, that, that this lamb theme is a theme of Scripture, one of the primary themes of Scripture. In fact, it's not the first time a lamb has come into the scene here sacrificially. We'll talk about that more here in a minute. God is giving Israel a way to be saved. He's providing a gracious way out. The way is gracious to Israel, but it still requires sacrifice. Something's going to die. Somebody's going to die tonight. In every single home in Egypt land, something's going to die. We see that salvation is by grace. God provides a way for them to be saved. And then secondly, we see that salvation is by faith. When we talk about someone being saved, we say it this way, don't we? We say, you're saved by grace through faith. God graciously gives us a way to be saved, and we put faith in what Christ has done for us, and so we're saved by grace through faith. And the people of Israel are saved the same way. Look down in verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And when, um, and look at the, down in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses uh, where you are. Where I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Look down in verse 22 and 23. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. What we see here, that God is calling upon Israel to exercise their faith. And the exercising of their faith results in putting blood on the doorpost. It wasn't the other way around. It's not that they put blood on the doorpost and then God saved them and then they had faith. No, they had faith in the message that Moses had brought to them. You must put this blood on the doorposts of your house. And they believed they've just seen, they've just seen God do unbelievable things in the nation of Egypt. And so they believe they have faith in this, I am who I am. And they, they hear the message from Moses and they realize we have faith in that God and we are going to exercise faith and, and, and uh, salvation is going to come to them through their belief that God is a God who's going to come and judge, and God is a God who is willing to save. <clears throat> so they kill lambs and put blood on the door and the lentils, uh, the, the doorposts, and the lentil is the crossbeam of their house. And they're going to be saved by faith. See, God comes looking for blood. He doesn't show up at the houses of the Egyptians and the Israelites, and he doesn't say, okay, I'm going, to kill, I'm going to kill the firstborn in this house based on how good of a person you are. So everybody come out here, and we're going to take a reckoning. We're going to, we're going to, I'm going to judge you right here and right now. And some of you have been really sinful, so you're going to be condemned, and some of you have been a little bit better, so, so you're going to be saved. That is, this is not what God is doing. God is coming, and he's seeing who has exercised faith. Who has trusted in my plan of deliverance? Those are the ones that are going to be saved. And so God comes through the land of Egypt and he sees no blood on the Egyptian doorposts. 
and he sees blood on the Israelite doorposts, and he rescues those who by faith have been obedient. He doesn't ask them to stand outside to see who is better than others. He, he doesn't stand them to come, ask them to come outside and see, even ask them which of you has more faith than others. He comes and he's simply looking for blood. They've had faith in the plan that God had revealed to them by Moses. They believed that God would save them, and so they obeyed. And that was not the other way around. They were trusting. <clears throat> Number three, salvation comes to them by God. Salvation comes to them by grace. Salvation comes to them by faith. Salvation also comes to them by God. Remember, this is God's plan. He's the one who comes to them with a way for them to be rescued and a way for them to be saved. And we can think for a moment back into Adam and Eve in the garden. And when Adam and Eve sin, Adam and Eve go and hide from God. And they don't go and hide from God and start, you know, uh, planning with each other to figure out, oh, man, we have blown it. I think we really ticked them off this time. What are we going to do? How are we going to fix this? And you can see they're sitting there, you know, uh, trying to come up with a plan. And, and Eve goes, oh, I, I, oh, no, that won't work. And Adam goes, oh, I, no, that won't work. And then finally one of them says, no, I know what it is. We'll, we, we, we understand God to some degree, and we understand that he exists in, in Trinity. And, uh, and so we'll ask the Father if he would send the Son to become a human, and then, uh, then we'll kill him, and God can pour his wrath out on him, and then he can offer righteousness to us if we'll put faith in him. It's, it's, not, it's not how this works. God is the one who comes with the rescue plan. God is the one who comes and says, I'm going to save you. Here's the plan. It's going to happen through the shed blood of a lamb. And so salvation comes to them by God. And fourthly, and don't get too excited, I'm not done yet. Fourthly, it is my kind of last point. <clears throat> salvation comes from God. Or excuse me, let me I said that wrong. This is salvation from God, or I'll say it this way. It's salvation from the wrath of God. And I touched on this some last week. Notice who is bringing the, the solution, who's bringing the salvation. God is bringing the salvation, but notice who's bringing the punishment. God is the one who's bringing the punishment against the sin. The destroyer, look in verse 23. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over <clears throat> the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Look down in verse 27. You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Do you know who is bringing the punishment against the Egyptians and against those who are workers of lawlessness? It is the holy and righteous God. The destroyer, most commentaries um, and, and theologians agree that the destroyer that's referred to here um, in verse 23 is this angelic representation of Yahweh. The, the, this, this is, we, we sometimes call it the death angel. 
And friends, what Israel, what Egypt needed to be saved from, they needed to be saved from God. They needed to be saved from the just and righteous God who was coming to uh, bring his punishment, his wrath against the, walk, the, the, the workers of lawlessness and the workers of, of sinfulness. <clears throat> One commentator says this, that night, this night here in the country of Egypt, that night there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. It was one or the other. For those who placed their faith in God and took shelter under the blood of the lamb, the lamb got what the son deserved. The lamb got what the firstborn deserved. We're going to come back to that quotation here in just a moment. Okay, we're halfway through my sermon. Here's what I'm going to do. We've seen how God saved Israel And I want us to see abundantly clearly, and some of you might say, this is so simple, this is so obvious. That's because it's so clear and so simple and so obvious in the Bible. And we're going to review it over and over again for the rest of our lives. But not only is this how God saves Israel, but this is also how God saves sinners. This is how God saves anyone. So so you'll notice here, Jay, let's go and just put all four of them up there. So how did God save Israel? God saved Israel by grace, by faith by God, from God. How does God save sinners? He saves them by grace, through faith. This is a plan that comes to us by God and it is salvation from God. The way God saves, saved Israel is, is not one of the ways that God saves. It's the way God saves. This is the way God saves. That's why I keep saying Exodus chapter, uh, the book of Exodus, and even especially Exodus chapter 12, um, is, is one of, it's one of the most concentrated spots in the Bible theologically. Like, um, do you remember, <clears throat> maybe they still do this, um, uh, shows you that I don't do this very often. Um, do they still make orange juice concentrate? Like the little frozen can and then you take it and you mix three cans of water with it or whatever and you have orange juice right so a, a friend of mine when i was growing up uh her family were first generation migrants from mexico and um and her dad couldn't read english and so he'd gone to the grocery store and he wanted to get some uh ice cream and he saw orange flavored ice cream it was orange juice concentrate and so he's eating this orange flavored ice cream and he's like that was just Really, like, man, American ice cream is just really strong. I mean, it was uh, it was almost too sweet for me to even you know even eat it. And she's like, Dad, that's orange juice concentrate. Like, you're supposed to dilute it like three to one in order for it to even be palatable. Okay, we're we're kind of in a passage that's like that because next week I'm preaching the same passage again uh, from a slightly different angle. And even by the end of next week, we're not going to have covered. We're not going to have plumbed the depths of this passage. But this passage is is so full and so concentrated. And what we see here is we see yet again that this is not a way that God saves, but the way that God saves. Now, and remember, let's just start from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sin, what does God do to cover them? He covers them with skins. Where do you get skins? From animals. Well, how do you get the skins off of an animal? There's... Only one way I've ever found to do it, and I've done it a number of times. There's one way to do it, right? You, you, you got to shed blood. 
you got to kill the animals. When Cain and Abel come to God with their sacrifices, one sacrifice is pleasing and the other sacrifice is not pleasing. Which one is pleasing? Right, Abel's, the one where blood had been shed, where sacrifices had been made. When Abraham takes Isaac to, the, to Mount Hermon and raises his knife to make a sacrifice of his son, what, what does God bring in that moment for the rescue, for the intervention there from the sacrifice of Isaac? He brings a ram. What happens to that ram? Blood is shed. Blood is shed for Adam and Eve. Blood is shed for um, uh, Cain and Abel's sacrifice, for Abraham and Isaac, here for Egypt and Israel. Um, as Israel is going to walk through for 40 years, walk through the, um, the, uh, the, the Sinai Peninsula, God is going to give them commands and laws, and he's going to give them laws that include sacrificing animals for the covering of their sins. Th this is the way that God saves. God saves when blood is shed in sacrifice for something else. But brothers and sisters, we also know this, that throughout the Old Testament, People have to <clears throat> offer a sacrifice, and they do it again and again and again and again and again. Why do they have to do it over and over and over and over again? Because a one-time sacrifice of that animal does not actually forgive them ultimately of their sins. It's a, it's a reminder of how sinful they are. It's a reminder of the cost of sin. But the Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats does not atone for sin. And so... All through the Old Testament, lambs are getting killed, lambs are getting killed, lambs are getting killed, lambs are getting killed. From Adam and Eve all the way through the end of the Old Testament, lambs are getting killed, lambs are getting killed, lambs are getting killed. And now listen, there was someone before Jesus came on the scene, there was someone who was his front man. There was someone who went out ahead of him and prepared the way. You remember who that was? John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist do? What did he say about Jesus? In fact, as Jesus approached him, I don't, was it in our, I don't think it was in our reading this morning. What does, what does, when John sees Jesus, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God. Now, if we didn't know the Old Testament, that would be weird. If AJ walked in and I said, behold the dog of Dalhart. That would be pretty fitting. No, I'm just kidding. But like that would be that would be like nonsensical. Like what are you even talking about, right? Evangeline's the the chicken of Texas. Right? You'd be like, what, what, why are you calling them an animal? Brothers and sisters, listen. When when John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he points to Jesus Christ and says, Look, the Lamb of God. Those who were in any way, shape, or form familiar with Old Testament history and the, the religion of, um, of the Jews, they would have immediately known exactly what that meant. Now, it may have puzzled them, but they got what John was talking about because John said, behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. They knew what lambs were for. Lambs. You I, the McMorris family brings the lamb into our house and we slay that lamb and that lamb's blood helps cover the sinfulness of our family. And like that's, that's what our lamb did. But our lamb doesn't cover the shoemakers. The shoemakers have to get their own lamb 
and they've got to sacrifice their own lamb and put that blood up or the death angel's going to get them. And John the Baptist, it's an unbelievable statement. John the Baptist looks at a man and says, look, there's the lamb, and, and he's not just going to take care of your family or just of you. He's going to take one lamb, one sacrifice, is going to take care of the sins of the whole world. It's an, it's an unbelievable statement. It's almost impossible for us to really feel the full weight of it. One of the things I was even praying um, is that, God, God, would you just help us to feel how incredible and how relieving it is that when Jesus shows up, that is said of him. <clears throat> See, God saves sinners the same way <clears throat> that he saves Israel. I know it sounds like I'm emotional, and I am somewhat emotional, but I'm kind of stripping gears here. <clears throat> God saves sinners by grace. Do, do you know why Israel was saved and Egypt was destroyed? Or, or excuse me, bore the wrath of God in this way, the firstborn being killed? Because God chose to give them a gracious provision of a lamb sacrifice. Do you know who was just as sinful as Egypt? Israel was. Do you know who, just, who deserved the wrath of God just as much as, as Egypt did? Israel did. But God was gracious. And God said, I'll provide a covering for your sins. A perfect lamb, a male lamb, a young lamb. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Brothers and sisters, do you know how you and I are saved? By the gracious act and provision of God sending his son, Jesus Christ, who becomes for us the lamb who was slain. And you read in the book of Revelation, and how is Jesus Christ described for all of eternity? As a lamb who was slain. This lamb came to give his life, Matthew 20, 28. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So God saves sinners by grace. God saves sinners by faith. By our putting what little bit of faith we have in what Christ, the sacrificial lamb, has done for us. That's how God saves you. It is not by you doing good works and crossing your fingers and hoping that you've been good enough because I assure you, you haven't been good enough. None of us have. I'm a pastor. I gotta apologize before I preach. I mean, like none of us have been good enough. I know most of you well enough to love you deeply and to not be particularly impressed with any of you anymore. And that is very much vice versa. But hallelujah, you don't need a perfect pastor and I don't need a perfect congregation because by faith, we put our faith in a perfect lamb who came and lived and died. He was sacrificed. His blood was shed. And as his blood bloodies that cross, we get just yet another picture of blood on the doorpost and blood on a lintel and those who will come under the blood. We sing songs about this all the time. And it would be weird if this wasn't true. Are you washed in the blood? Imagine having no understanding of religion whatsoever, walking in to a church for the first time and hearing people sing a song called, Are You Washed in the Blood? I'd be like, I'm gone. I don't know what those people are up to, and I'm not sticking around to find out. And yet that's one of the most precious songs we as believers can sing because we understand what it means to be washed in the blood 
of Jesus Christ. We are saved by faith. And that faith does work itself out. The children of Israel believed the, the plan that God had provided. And so what did they do? They painted their doorpost. They readied their provisions. They ate with their staff in hand. They got rid of the leaven. They packed up. They were ready. Their, their faith resulted in obedience. Faith without works is dead. So salvation by faith is not a faith that doesn't result in works. It absolutely does result in works. We are, we are saved by faith. God saves. And again, this is this is a, a salvation that, uh, point number three, is salvation by God. He's the one who came to Adam and Eve when they were sinners. He's the one who came to Cain and Abel. He's the one who came to Abraham and Isaac. He's the one who came to Israel. And he is the one who made a plan for you to receive the gospel. <clears throat> if you're here this morning, all of you probably have heard the plan of the gospel before. God has graciously brought his plan of salvation, his way of making you right with him, he's brought it to you. Salvation has come by him. And how, how important then does that become for us to take the message to others as well? I feel like God has renewed, has stirred my heart here in recent weeks with the reality of what hell is, the reality that people are going there, and the reality that the only way they will be delivered is by this plan. But he has come with it. He's brought it. And we're to carry it as well. Salvation by God. And then finally, salvation from God. From the wrath of God. Satan does not send you to hell. He doesn't have that kind of power. And he wants you there. And he wants to trip you up in every way possible. Your sin is the reason that you go to hell. But who's the one who says, depart from me, I never knew you, into everlasting destruction? The righteous judge. And we talked about that last week um, at length. The righteous judge is the one who looks people in the eyes and says, you are a, you are a worker of lawlessness. Depart from me. It is salvation by God, <clears throat> and it is salvation from God. Brothers and sisters, um, Jay, go back to the main point slide for a second. Only the blood of a sacrificed lamb will save from the wrath of God. That was true for Israel. That's true for me and you. That's true for anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Remember I said that night there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. It was one or the other. For those who placed their faith in God and took shelter under the blood of the lamb, the lamb got what the son deserved. Do you see how true that is for us today? For those who place their faith in Christ Jesus and take shelter under the blood of the lamb, he has taken what you deserve, what you and I deserve. So, so where are you this morning? Are you still kind of trusting in your own Efforts, your own way, you're just better than all the other Egyptians out there? I assure you, you aren't. <clears throat> we are only saved by the blood of a sacrificed lamb. And the way that we appropriate that, the way that they express their faith is by painting blood on the doorpost. The way that we express our faith is by calling out, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In conclusion, I've got... Um, couple of sentences here that help us understand. Um, are we able to underline those? 
I'll, I'll draw attention to it. It's okay. Oh, there it is. It's, it's, it's not back there. I'm sorry, Jay. <clears throat> through the Lamb, this is for Israel. Through the Lamb, Yahweh saves Israel from slavery to Pharaoh. Don't, don't put the other one up yet. Through the Lamb, Yahweh saves Israel from slavery to Pharaoh. Now, see the, the words that are underlined there? We could take that same sentence and with just slightly changing the words in the blanks, it's true for us. Now go ahead and put that other. Through Jesus, Yahweh saves sinners from slavery to sin and death. What's happening here in the book of Exodus is a precursor. It's, a, it's, a, um, it's the illustration before the reality. It's real for the people of Israel. It's real, and this Exodus account really did happen, and people were saved this way. But it's just, it's one of the Bible's most beautiful pictures of what Jesus Christ is going to come and do. Through the Lamb, Yahweh saves Israel from slavery to Pharaoh. Through Jesus, Yahweh saves sinners from slavery to sin and death. If you're here this morning and you have never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, if you're not trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ as your covering, against the death angel, against the wrath of God, then this morning, you simply, in your seat right there, you, you call upon the name of the Lord. You call upon Jesus and say, um, I'm a sinner and I deserve to have the wrath come down on me. Angie was sharing the gospel with one of the children at, at Vacation Bible School um, last week or what, the week before, whenever that was. And uh, and it was a young little boy, very tenderhearted, and he said, but what if I, what if I feel like I deserve the wrath? What, like, wh what, if, what if I think, yeah, I've sinned, and, and I actually deserve the punishment? Shouldn't I just take the punishment? Angie was able to, Angie was able to wisely counsel that young man. Brothers and sisters, you, you, you can't bear it. You, you won't survive it. You do deserve it. And that impulse is what drives us to the gospel. For, for those of you who have been saved, for most of you, you realize, like there was a point where you realized, it clicked. I actually do deserve that. I do deserve that. And I don't want it. I want to be delivered from that punishment. I want to be delivered from the wrath of God. And I call up, and, and this is why Jesus came. God is glorified in our turning from our own way and putting faith in him. And if you've not done that this morning, I trust that you will. If you have done that, I hope that this, what we've looked at together here this morning will remind you of who you are, will remind you of who God is and what God has done through Christ to save sinners. And then I hope it will remind you to take this message of the gospel, this good news, and to share it with other people as well. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I'll invite the music team to come back up. <clears throat> They're gonna lead us in a song and then Matt will come and close our time together in prayer. Father, Please, please use your word this morning in our lives to remind us of the incredible forgiveness that is ours through a lamb, a lamb that was slain. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to be our sacrificial Passover lamb. If there's anyone here this morning, Father, who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray that today they would turn from their sin and trust in him. If they need to talk with some God, I pray that they would stay and talk with me or, or someone else about that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll sing.